0: Hear ye hear ye word nerds, be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly or don't. That's a choice you could make. Don't say we didn't warn you. Other than that,
1: it's been really quiet. Nothing important has happened at all. It's been
0: such a quiet week. There's like nothing nothing that we need to discuss. That mm-hmm. might be relevant to there have been no
1: insurrections or None. attempted coups. Mm-hmm. No. Twenty twenty one has really lived up to its promise of I not mean, being twenty twenty. Yeah.
0: Really? I mean yeah. Jesus fuck, y'all. <laughs> shakespeare show we are your hosts jess hamlet
1: and aubrey whitlock and together we are hamlet and this week we're talking about kim f hall and her amazing foundational scholarship yeah so thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoy this show and come back for more
0: hey uh happy 2021 aubrey yeah indeed have a nice holiday and uh... i
1: did it was very quiet um, yeah, mostly solitary. Although I mm-hmm. did get to see my BFF Lexi for like two <gasps> days over New Lexi? Year's. Yeah, yep. Oh, we I uh, we that. risked it. I, <laughs> it was really funny when I picked her up at the local airport. Mm-hmm. She was like face guard, two masks, and also yeah. I accidentally drove right by her in the pickup line because she was on the other side of the street, far away from all the people. <laughs>
0: Like, what? Uh, yeah. Um, well, so on that note, maybe we should talk about what our happy hour is. <laughs> oh, sure. But I mean, to... I also
1: wanted to ask you how your oh, yeah. ho- actual holiday was because oh, I yeah. talked about mine at length. Right. But
0: um, it was you know lovely. It was really it was busy. It was really busy. Um, I I have a a, a friend here, a colleague, um, who is a master student and decided not to go home for the holidays because of all of the reasons that one might choose not to go home for the holidays. Um, And so I said, you know, hey, I don't always do Christmas alone, but I did last year. I'm familiar with it. But you—you you are a, a young yeah. wee lass who likes their family and is not used <laughs> to being away. Um, so why don't you come over and like we'll have like we'll do a proper Christmas and I made pot roast and I got her stocking and like we had like a nice little time. Nice. Um, and then she was here for New Year's Day brunch as well. Um, she's amazing she's like the human embodiment of caps lock like if you think about caps lock as a person that's who she is she's oh, wow she's incredible she's she i i love her just so very dearly so shout out to kira yeah and other than that you know i've been on vacation since uh new year's eve um i haven't done a lick of work i haven't looked at a single email i haven't touched my computer i watched a lot of tv Read some books, baked some stuff. But anyway,
1: (laughs) yeah, let's talk about things that make us happy. Let's talk about happy hour.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a cocktail of
1: stuff that makes us happy in this crazy, crazy dumpster fire that is...
0: 2020 plus one yeah you know (laughs)
1: things things like inclusivity yep and decolonization and anti-racist pedagogy and naturally you know puppies kittens rainbows yeah things like that just wholesome good things
0: mugs of tea
1: yeah smell of books Yes, so we're just going to recommend a couple of things that aren't mm-hmm. terrible that we're yeah. really enjoying right now. I mean, this entire episode you will soon find out is sort of a like a a giant, just a huge dose of anti-racist pedagogy. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: we'll save. I, I think I'll save whatever recommendations I had for that. Yeah, you know, for Kim Hall. Um, but another thing I I just discovered uh, based on a recommendation from a friend is this podcast called Maintenance Phase with <clears throat> Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. Um Aubrey Gordon is um she was an anonymous writer. Uh she has recently come out as herself. She's known as Your Fat Friend on all of the on like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, but now uh she has revealed her identity and she's recently published a book. Um but she and Michael Hobbs the whole point of this particular podcast is to like do a deep dive on uh Health myths that keep being perpetuated, or not just myths, but like the paraphernalia of mm-hmm. um, of health and wellness, mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. the wellness um, crock. Um, so, like yeah. they've had episodes on Fenfen. Fen. If you're a '90s child and you remember, remember the Fenfen Fen Fen Fen. craze, yeah, they do like a deep dive on Fenfen Fen and on yeah. Snackwell's cookies and on like oh,
0: um,
1: sure. like deep, deep dives on the history of these things and why they. Were what they were and what they perpetuate, and, and it's fascinating. And mm-hmm. their dynamic is just hysterical. I just love listening to the two of them talk. So that's been a really great thing to listen to on my commute to my job every day because I have right. to commute now.
0: Yeah, you sure so, do. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Jess? Uh, I want you and me, you all, I want you, Aubrey, and me, and okay. all, all of our listeners. Um, to get yourselves a hot water bottle. This is my recommendation: get a hot water bottle. And okay. just, just they're so underrated. Like they're so <laughs> underrated. Um, I but got don't a hot water. Do they get water cold bottle? really fast? Like no. that's always been what like, like has if put you me off. Eight hours is really fast. Well, <laughs> shit. Yeah. Uh, no. No. Um. Yeah, I, I got myself a hot water bottle a couple of years ago, maybe three or four on the recommendation of my dear friend, Molly Seremet, all of our dear friends, all of ours, mm-hmm. dear friend. I'm not sure where the plural goes in that sentence. Everyone's dear friend.
1: I I don't think it's like attorneys general. I, right. I don't think it's like ours dear friend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's different.
0: Yes. Is it just? Is, I guess ours. Our dear friend. So just our dear friend. All yeah. of our. Yeah. Dear friend. Yeah. Z- what is language? <laughs> anyway. Tim, you
1: can really tell you've been on a hiatus. Mm. <laughs> words have abandoned you
0: uh, yep so molly molly told me to get one or molly had one and was raving mm-hmm. it anyway i got one uh because of molly and it's amazing and i don't use it a whole lot because i live in alabama where sure. it is you know hot <laughs> all the yeah. time um but it is properly chilly Uh, right now and it'll be properly chilly for a couple more weeks and I have been snuggling with it and I just Mm. I'm reminded it's and it's like it's a nice weight also Mm -hmm. so it just like it feels like I mean Mm. your cats snuggle with you mine does not (laughs) so it's it's (laughs) like I'm snuggling a cat Except I'm not because she hates me and doesn't want to be she friends. She does not hate you. No, she Becky. Loves you. Becky loves me and I love her and our love is pure and true. But also she's not she's not a snuggler. She's not a cuddler, huh? No. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, let's do this episode. Forty-five yeah, minutes later. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh,
1: this is gonna be a this is a different episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we've okay, so never
0: done an episode like this.
1: We have not. We have not. This season is a, just a yeah. a season of firsts for mm-hmm. like new and different off the yeah. off the 101 201 301 track yeah. uh, of episodes. So mm-hmm. this this is why Jess is going to tell us why we are devoting yeah, an entire yeah. episode to a scholar <clears throat> and this particular scholar.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So of course, if you've been around uh, for a while, if you've listened to our podcast for more than just this season um you know that we do special topics episodes not infrequently i mean there's usually one or two mm-hmm. in a season right this is if this is a thing that we've done but it's always been on like the Men or early modern dicks yeah or, or Blackfriars
1: conference or saa yeah yeah, yeah yeah like
0: yeah. stuff that that You would expect, I guess, from from a a podcast that has Shakespeare in the title. Right. Like, yeah. So Kim Hall is um, the the scholar that I cite most frequently in my dissertation and way, way, way back when years ago in the first season, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. you you'll remember that we had we made a like a, a list of all the plays that we wanted to cover and all of our, mm-hmm. like our dream guests, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kim Hall has been on that list since day one. She was yep. one of the first people I put on there, um, yep. because I am a big, big fan. And then when we were talking about what we were gonna do this season, that was we had that conversation what in August? Yeah. So sunrise, right. yeah. Yeah. Um so, you know, right at the at the end, middle end of the summer of 2020, which um as you may recall, was a big time for anti-racism and racial justice and social justice yeah. and yeah. there a lot of there was a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And so we said, you know, we we sat down and we said we thought, you know, what if we do an episode on just a single scholar and their output and what they stand for. Um, what if we did that? And we're mm-hmm. like, I mean, that sounds kind of cool, right? It's like bringing in some secondary research, exposing a new audience to this incredible work. And obviously, you know, I'm a big fan girl for Kim Hall. So I was like, let's fucking just make it yeah. about Kim Hall. But also, Dr. Hall's major work, her first book is called Things of Darkness, and it is 25 years old this year. Not this mm-hmm. year. Last year, twenty twenty. In twenty twenty, it turned twenty five, um, and it's a foundational text for people working on race in the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And it's fucking brilliant. And also, Dr. Hall is brilliant and so kind and generous and gorgeous and amazing in every way. Um, so that's why we're doing that. This that's what we're doing. Yeah, but, and it it just it feels timely. Yeah, Felt timely in August, does. feels timely now.
1: Yeah. I, th- I hope it keeps feeling timely. Mm-hmm, I hope this mm-hmm. is one of our mm-hmm. episodes that just doesn't, that feels evergreen. Yeah. Um,
0: I also would like to think that this is maybe the first podcast episode ever anywhere that's been all about kim hall and i hope that she puts this on her cv and is like "Mm, there's a podcast about me so (laughs) (laughs) dr hall if you're listening please god i like low-key hope that she never hears about this but also like low-key want her to know (laughs) you know it's like it's the whole like never meet your heroes except i've sort of met her and she's yeah. amazing but also but think I of just... it this way
1: if she hears this then maybe we can invite her on and she can like clarify the stuff that we're inevitably mm. gonna you know
0: i mean that's the thing right it's like, like i don't want to get her shit wrong i don't want to get things wrong but <clears throat> also terrified.
1: i'd love to like dive deeper into her own mm-hmm. work with her like yeah wouldn't
0: that be cool yeah so, so anyway. like anything we get
1: wrong now is clearly done on purpose as a ploy <laughs> to get Dr. Hall onto our show in the future.
0: Oh, that'd be amazing. Just yeah.
1: Be amazing. <laughs> we're totally
0: doing it on purpose. Right. So that's why we're doing this. Yes. Moving on. Who yes. is Kim Hall? Other than yeah. everything that I've already said, let me tell yeah. you. Please tell um, us about her. Yeah. Kim Hall is Kim Dr. Kim F. Hall. Uh, is the Lucille Hook Professor of English and Director of Africana Studies at Barnard College in New York, which is also part of Columbia College, Columbia University question mark. I don't really understand how they go together, but I think Columbia and
1: NYU and some of those other Ivy Leagues, like old timey Ivy Leagues, do like a residential college type of system mm. like like Oxford and Cambridge and shit. yeah. I think they. Do. I think they adopted something similar to that.
0: Yeah. Well, the masthead on her faculty homepage <laughs> says Barnard College. Right. Columbia. Dash columbia university right um, yeah. so i i understand that they're linked in some way i'm just not clear on what their relationship is anyway that's where she works um, she's a graduate of hood college in maryland and also got her phd from the university of pennsylvania mm-hmm. she's a native of baltimore maryland she's a skilled quilter she's awesome on twitter you should follow her she's at prof Um, She's awesome everywhere. If you don't know that now, you're going to know that by the end of this because she's awesome. So Mm -hmm. that's who she is. Deal with it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Suck Um, it. uh,
1: In preparation for this episode, I (laughs) read, you know, the stuff that you and I had agreed we were (laughs) going to read. But I also went back and I listened to her. Um, Shakespeare's birthday talk mm-hmm. at the Folger. You know, Othello was my grandfather. And I love the way she describes her own background. And I just mm-hmm. I got the transcript of that talk. And I just want to read that real quick. Please do. She said, uh, I spend most of my academic life in two worlds, the world of Renaissance and Shakespeare studies, to which certain values are attached, genius, universality, transcendence and timelessness, and the world of black cultural production More associated with emotion, embodiment, particular forms of genius, no doubt, but also with trouble and disruption. Thus, over 20 years, I have lived in the heart of canonical knowledge in the United States and at its most influential margins. I see almost daily the complicated differences between the authority allowed and denied to people of color, even over our own experiences, and the authority and value attributed to quote-unquote white cultural artifacts, often without scrutiny. Love that. And I love that. I love that's how she kind of describes the situa- like where she situates her work um, and her thinking and her writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it's just completely indicative of her writing style and mm-hmm. how direct and concise and sort of unflinching she is. And I, yeah. I appreciate that about her a lot. Um, so in terms of what she has written, uh, Jess already mentioned her... Her big work, Things of Darkness, Economies of Race and Gender in Early Modern England. Uh, And so this is... Um, I'm now going to read from her faculty page for Barnard College because it summarizes pretty nicely her other works in case you want to look at those for yourself. So here it is. Quote, her first book, Things of Darkness, published in 1996 by Cornell University Press, used a black feminist approach to interpret Renaissance literature and helped generate a new wave of scholarship on race in Shakespeare and Renaissance slash early modern texts. Her second book, Othello, Texts and Contexts, Bedford St. Martin's Press 2006, offers readers visual and verbal textual materials that illuminate themes in Shakespeare's play Othello, The Moor of Venice. She is currently working on two book projects. Sweet Taste of Empire, which examines roles of race, aesthetics, and gender in the Anglo-Caribbean sugar trade during the 17th century, and a new project, Othello was my grandfather, Shakespeare and the African Diaspora, which discusses Afro-diasporic appropriations of othello she is the 2018 sam wanamaker fellow for shakespeare's globe and will deliver a keynote address on race and genealogy shakespeare and the transatlantic struggle for black freedom for the shakespeare and race festival in august 2018 and maintains the hashtag #ShakeRace hashtag on twitter for discussions of race uh, of shakespeare race and culture so obviously this um bio her faculty page bio is a teensy weensy bit old it's from Mm -hmm. 2018 it's as recent as 2018 because that's the most recent stuff they cite um Mm -hmm. but basically it gives her her oeuvre pretty um,
0: concisely she's written a ton of articles also they're all so fucking good i mean i haven't read all of them But the ones I have read are also fucking good. So I expect that the ones that I haven't read are also so fucking good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, And and this, you know, typical of
1: the scholars that you and I tend to like, I know we gush about Tiffany Stern a lot, too. mm -hmm. And what I notice about Dr. Hall's work and also um, Tiffany Stern's work is, like, it's not just one single focus and like this is the thing I write about this is the thing I think about all the time they are constantly you know applying their previous lenses to new stuff and new yeah. projects um, and and being the kind of scholars who are like actually I've been exploring this other facet of this thing and here's how I'm applying it to what I already do
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which I think is is a cool thing I'm sure they are not the only academics that do that. I'm sure that's the the goal of the academy in general. But, like, they seem to do it quite well. They do.
0: Um, So why do we care? Uh, As I said earlier um there have been a lot of celebratory events to mark things of darkness turning 25 this year several of which i attended uh and one of them i can't remember which one and i can't remember who said it sorry uh but someone said that if you are teaching a text written by or about black people you need to teach things of darkness and if you're teaching a text written by or about white people you need to teach things of darkness the text is so good and so important and it's just it's par for the course as far as Dr. Hall's work goes. Everything she writes is so smart and so useful and it never feels like of a moment, right? Like mm-hmm. Things of Darkness was written in the 90s but doesn't feel dated in any way. It's always important, it's prescient, it's relevant and it's moving, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I come back to Things of Darkness <laughs> god with every fucking project I've worked on in the last 3 or 4 years. And every time I, f- I find different things in there that apply to what I'm working on now. Um, and I love going back through and looking at my marginalia because I can tell like which comment I wrote <laughs> for which project, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes because they're like obviously coded. It's like, is is Hope Leslie responding to this? So obviously I was thinking about Hope Leslie, but, you know, because because of the different... Tax that I take on my work. Um, yeah. different stuff pops out. So it's really good. Um, all of her work is good. So what we're gonna do um now is I'm gonna take you through Things of Darkness really fast. It's an entire book. We could have do an entire mm-hmm. episode on this Shoot. book. But we could do an entire season
1: on this book, like chapter by chapter. We <laughs> sure could.
0: We yeah. surely, surely could. Um, so I'm just gonna take you through that really quick fast um i went back to the notes i took on the book for comps and i sort of abbreviated that and i i hope with this to give you just an overview of what the book is and is about and some of the arguments uh, some of the argument threads it it brings up um so we're gonna start there then we are going to fast forward to maybe the two most recent things that dr mm-hmm. hall has published um and that is the introduction to American More, uh, which is a play that I know we've talked about on this podcast by Keith Hamilton Cobb mm-hmm. um, and that we might hear a little bit more about in the future. Who can say? I don't yes, know. I don't can know. say. Yeah, we're we're going to hear more about it. Um, yes. And, and Aubrey's going to take you through that. And then we're going to come back together at the end and talk about um, Dr. Hall's, I think, most recent argue, uh, article came out in August of last year um, and just talk about that together. It's a different kind of writing. And anyway, we'll get to it. So that's what we're going to do. And then we'll do the rest of the stuff that we usually do.
1: Before you jump in, I just Mm want to throw out there to like our listeners who are more on the theater side of things Mm -hmm. and theater making Mm -hmm. don't tune out of this episode like (laughs) I know it feels tempting to be like well this one's a really academic one we can skip this and jump to the next play but like I think it's it's really important to think about how think about as you're listening like Mm -hmm. how this person's scholarship can affect the work that you do on stage Mm -hmm. right because you know this is the thing that I kind of always want to push for is how can, you know, the big ideas that we talk about actually be applicable on stage? And I feel like maybe not every single thing in her body of work is going to do that. But if you're listening with that lens, you might find something valuable in this as well. So yeah. just just be thinking. about. It. I know Keith Hamilton Cobb did. Mm-hmm.
0: So, mm-hmm.
1: you know, and he's a working
0: actor right now. Yeah.
1: So also, just throwing that
0: out there. In the year 2021, it's important not... To look away from conversations about race, that too, yeah.
1: yes, just on a very macro level, yeah, yeah. don't don't do that either, yeah, yeah, uh, but also thinking about our trades and where they overlap, yeah. like, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah for um, sure. Okay, take it away. So things of darkness. Um, this is from. Um, The introduction to to her book where she articulates kind of the overarching idea of, of what we're going at. So this is from page two, direct quote. I argue that descriptions of dark and light rather than being mere indications of Elizabethan beauty standards or markers of moral categories became in the early modern period the conduit through which the English began to formulate the notions of self and other so Mm -hmm. well known in anglo-american racial discourses that's the jumping off point for this Mm -hmm. book is thinking about the way language contributes to how people think about race um really really fights back against the claim that like race didn't exist in the renaissance there were no black people in england so on and so forth right right thoroughly debunked thoroughly debunked yeah i feel like this was the work that kind
1: of busted Mm -hmm. that wide Mm -hmm. open
0: yeah if you if you are interested in learning more about actual black people living in actual england in the actual renaissance uh habib's 2008 book black lives in the english archives 1500 to 1677 it is Mm -hmm. in affordable paperback now from rutledge um and it's I I mean, I we could do an entire episode on this book, Um, so I'll really try not to birdwalk, but it it catalogs every single confirmed uh, person of African descent that he could find archival mention of in england wow. for the you know almost 200 years um so it's 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 an incredible yeah incredible resource
1: anyway yeah so never again <laughs> believe casting directors who are like well this is a period piece there's no black people
0: mm-hmm. not true mm-hmm. not true
1: mm-hmm. not true mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. these books mm-hmm. disprove mm-hmm. that mm-hmm.
0: yeah yep um anyway okay so this is also a giant quote from uh the introduction that will further situate what the book is about here we mm-hmm. go Quote. The trope of blackness had a broad arsenal of effects in the early modern period, meaning that it is applied not only to dark-skinned Africans but to Native Americans, Indians, Spanish, and even Irish and Welsh as groups Mm -hmm. that needed to be marked as other. However, I assert that in these instances it still draws its power from England's ongoing negotiations of African difference and from the implied color comparison therein. Thus, the Irish may be called black and an English woman may be called Ethiopian but these moments always depend on a visual schema that itself relies on an idea of african difference it is impossible to look solely at a single broad group for the investigation of one difference inevitably opens up inquiry into other cultural religious and ethnic differences my discussion therefore often expands to include muslims native americans indians white north africans and jews okay so we're we're Really thinking about um, the language of dark and light, of fair and dark, and black and white, and blackness, mm-hmm. and so on, mm-hmm. um, and we're we're thinking about how that language informed ideas of identity and ideas of race. Mm-hmm. Okay, so chapter one uh, is on travel narratives, particularly those with descriptions of Africa, and shows how cultural myths about race are based on gendered representations of foreign cultures and how those foreign cultures were expected to bow to European cultural expectations. Right? So you. Cool. Yeah, right? It's really, mm -hmm, yeah. We're, so this is this is the idea that yeah. you process everything based on what you know, right? right. Like when we when we teach often or when we talk about our work, we locate everything through the lens of Shakespeare, right? We're like mm-hmm. Shakespeare's contemporary Thomas Middleton, Shakespeare's rival Ben Jonson, right? right? You know, have you ever seen Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare? Well, that story is kind of like this one that I'm going to talk about somewhere else, right? Like right. That's that's the idea happening here. Chapter two is on lyric poetry and representations of race and beauty in English Petrarchan sonnets. Um for those of you who don't know what a Petrarchan sonnet is, it's more or less the kind of sonnet that Shakespeare wrote. That is enough definition to get you through this episode. Yeah. We have an episode on sonnets coming up next time. So like we can get more into it then. Yeah. Um yeah. So anyway, uh, so she argues the English sonnets um, are predicated on what she calls "quote a process of conversion of black to white that supports English competition for New World trade and that works to alleviate particularly aristocratic anxieties over their unusual involvement in merchant trade as well as more general anxieties over extending traditional patterns of commerce and diplomacy to stranger nations." End quote. Um, the major focus of this chapter is Philip Sidney's Astrophil and Stella sonnet sequence and she uses individual sonnets from it to explore the themes of sunburn cosmetics and whitewashing she also introduces poems in this chapter uh that deal with african difference um and as an appendix i think she prints basically the full text of also uh, all of those poems um which is also incredibly useful as a resource Mm -hmm. um right okay so chapter three is on race on stage for all of you theater practitioners mm-hmm. out there mm-hmm. chapter three race on chapter stage. three um it argues that james the first is responsible for an increased presence of blackness on the Jacobean stage because he brought with him from scotland uh a, an interest in the quote-unquote un- exotic uh mm-hmm. and and the other and Right so we sort of we all know the story that like that's where Macbeth came from is that Mm -hmm. like James is super into witches and also was like maybe descended from Macbeth and so Shakespeare was like "Mm, I'm gonna write you a play like bitch I'm gonna write you a play that's so good like you're not even gonna know bitch Um, and then he like wrote that play anyway. So that's how it went down. That is word for word how it went down. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. 400 she, years ago. Yeah, uh huh. That's I, yeah. I, I was there. I'm a time yeah. traveler, so I know. <laughs> I knew uh, it. I yeah. knew it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, chapter four considers women writers, especially Lady Mary Roth, and thinks about quote, female investment in and resistance to England's imperial project. If you don't know what England's imperial project is, may I give you the world.
1: (laughs) I mean, come on folks. The sun never set on the British empire for a while there. Oh boy. Oh boy.
0: Um, And then chapter five, final chapter is one of the most fascinating and talked about chapters of the book um, because it thinks broadly about portraiture and visual culture. It specifically takes up the genre of the black servant portrait to examine Mm. ideas of white dominance and black submission as signifiers or white wealth, and, uh, not signifiers or, signifiers of white wealth and identity. Uh, she writes, quote, the polarity of dark and light is most often worked out in representations of black men and white women. The black slash white opposition posits a special relationship between white femininity and black masculinity that is negotiated in artistic representation, discursive practices, and social modes. This dependence on black men to define fairness appears most startlingly in the black servant portraits i discuss and in that chapter she includes images of all of those portraits that she talks about and they Mm -hmm. are they are something yeah they're i mean they're really really incredible the way that it subordinates black Mm -hmm. mostly black men sometimes black children um in in those portraits so anyway um that is that is things of darkness in whatever like seven minutes uh yeah you're welcome (laughs) for 300 pages uh, of that um if if you feel like anything that you do touches on the idea of blackness or whiteness or representations of race you need this book get it from your library Mm -hmm. borrow it from your neighborhood academic Mm -hmm. uh get it on the internet it's out there and i don't think it's terribly expensive i i'm pretty sure it's affordable i bought mine i don't know some number of years ago i can't i can't tell you how long ago that was um but i don't i don't recall it being ridiculous it's in paperback so you know it's mm-hmm. always more affordable than the the hardbacks. Um, yeah. Anyway, you need this book. So, yeah. Aubrey, um, tell us now then about uh, what Dr. Hall has to say about American War.
1: Yeah. Before I jump into that, I'm just going to briefly walk on a tangent of, like, interdisciplinary influence mm. that this book mm-hmm. has had. Because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the whole time you were summarizing the chapters of Things of Darkness, I was thinking about a book I just read um, by Dr. Sabrina Strings. Called Fearing the Black Body. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, she breaks down again. She basically takes chapter five of this book and builds on it um, and focusing not on black men, depictions of black men, but on black women and their Mm -hmm. size and their shape and how that was used um, eventually. Yeah, to uh, as the birth of, um, she argues basically that fat phobia was birthed during the Renaissance during this time um, in England at the Mm -hmm. start of the transatlantic slave trade Mm -hmm. and art, visual art was used to get it, get it kickstarted. And yeah, it's just fascinating to me the influence that this text has had, the interdisciplinary influence that it's had. Um, It's kind of amazing, which tells you that, that it's a foundational work, right? That it's, um, you know, spread out. Uh, and influenced a whole bunch of thinkers in different subjects. Yeah. Um, okay, one of those thinkers is uh, Keith Hamilton Cobb, who mm-hmm. wrote a little play called American Moor. It's which so good. Is, it is so good. It's a two-person show. It's basically a one-man show. It's mostly him and like this disembodied voice of a white yeah. director. Um, but he he wrote it as a response to Othello as a Um, You've heard me talk about this before, Mm -hmm. like right after I I was very lucky that I got to go see his performance at the Anacostia Playhouse in D.C. But uh, Dr. Hall wrote the introduction to the published version Mm -hmm. the paperback published version of this play and it is only three pages long it's it's real short um and like every line of it is straight fire like i I seriously yeah i could just read it but i'll give you a few choice quotes like also i just i i've said it before you know while we were recording i just really enjoy her her prose yeah. voice yeah um, I, I really do and she just like because she's just a straight shooter like this is this is the opening of her introduction. Othello is one of Shakespeare's most agonizing audience experiences yes ma'am it is um there is something unbearable about watching a play with knowledge that could stop the tragedy unfolding in front of you it's a attention akin to the desperate urgency of the racially conscious subject in a willfully colorblind world Oof. so she's i know she's like immediately taking i don't know it's like she reached into my brain and all of my feelings about othello mm-hmm. that just infuriate me and like put yeah. words to it um So clearly I'm not alone (laughs) (laughs) and I'm not the first, obviously. Um, She she also, you know, well, she says some stuff in this introduction, obviously, like the whole point of an introduction to a play is to situate the play in like, you know, overarching thought and the moment it's cultural moment that it's being published. So, um, you know, she says in traditional productions of Othello, the overall vision for the staging is mostly in the hands of white creators and performed for predominantly white audiences. Um, thus, even apart from the play's emotional extremes, playing Othello makes extraordinary psychic demands upon black actors, um, which is, of course, what this play um, by Keith Hamilton Cobb is all about. It's um, an actor waiting for his turn to audition for the role of Othello and how conflicted he is about playing Othello and whether he should and what's the point of this character. And it was written for by a white guy, not for him, um, you know, a character that hall says was both was and was not created for you which is exactly what it was um she says the actor must be compelling and beguiling be thick-skinned and able to take direction and criticism but a director controls the reality in the room what happens when your years of experience and skill are unexpectedly and unintentionally turned to your negation and finally she ends on this thought which i think is just wonderful she says we can stop the racism in theater and in our lives if we can make space the space and time for learning and listening we don't have to passively play the roles as others imagine them yeah it's a it's just a great it sets you up really really well to go into reading american more um i mean it's yeah it's it's fantastic yeah. I mean, I don't want to like blow our load on American Moore because we are going to do a whole episode on it. Um, spoilers! Surprise! I know. I don't don't
0: know why we like keep it under wraps. Like our season is state
1: secrets. We're not going to tell you what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) There will be an episode on uh, like on the play. Yeah, soon. Of its own merit, but like, yeah, she, um, she is the voice that he chose that the publisher mm-hmm. chose i don't know who chose but it was a good decision um, well, to have be- her introduce this play
0: it's because in in his show in his performance the mm. the copy of othello that he uses is the bedford st martin's one that dr hall edited <gasps> that's why yeah 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 and it okay it was out of print and then he needed a new one because the book kind of gets thrown around oh yeah yeah
1: Yeah, he abuses that prop yeah it
0: gets destroyed and so he needed a new one but it was out of print he couldn't get one now it's back in print uh which is really exciting because also uh, kim hall um all right so let's talk about the thing that we both read for today not that we both haven't read all of these things because we have but today we both read this thing (laughs) um yes like actually today like this morning they uh, both read this mm-hmm. piece uh yep. yeah so it's called i can't love you this the way that you want me to colon archival blackness which was published in the journal post medieval in august of 2020 mm-hmm. um and this is a print ish version i assume it's been revised of a talk that she gave at the shakespeare association of america conference in 2019 Mm. um which we were both there for and blown away by um and from the abstract to this article uh she says this is a personal meditation offering a sense of what it's like to follow traces of a fellow in archives meant to celebrate white achievement Mm -hmm. and it is it's something yeah it is it's, it's really moving it's really really moving it's not a scholarly article in the traditional sense of like right. jargon and here's a clear argument and we're right. gonna cite a lot of philosophers and make this really dense it's not that way at all no at it's all not
1: no it's much more yeah it's a uh, much more visceral much mm-hmm. more like sort of it's sort of anecdotal really mm-hmm. I mean it's completely mm-hmm. anecdotal she it's yeah. about her like trip to the to the archives one day in yep. New York City mm-hmm. New York City
0: Yeah uh, York. the She's of course New York Columbia Library I think yeah. is where she says she's going
1: And um she it's like yeah. too real because it's the she situates the whole thing this anecdote takes place like the day after the 2016 election Yeah where Y'all know a lot of us were kind of reeling that day mm-hmm. and dealing with some stuff, everybody in their own way. Um, and this is what she did on that day. Yeah. And I can't, oh my goodness. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine the emotional fortitude to even think about doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she goes into the, she tells about how she goes into the archives and she's searching for instances of um, this Othello this slave yeah. that was named Othello yeah um, and all of the other things she finds along the way in searching through the archives of this one guy's possessions I forget yeah that is
0: um so she she but. says that she had read New York Burning by Jill Lepore um which is was published in 2006 I think mm-hmm. um where she learns uh about an enslaved man named Othello who was Allegedly part of the New York conspiracy of 1741. Um, Mm -hmm. And Jill Lepore speculates that this enslaved Othello um, is the same Othello listed in the estate inventory of new york governor john montgomery um ah, that's in the 1700s ish 17 1740 question mark um yeah, it's like early yeah. early colonial america yeah so yeah. she she went on down to the new york public library to pull up this estate inventory um and then walks us through it and and mm. uses items in the the inventory to sort of talk us through what this was like um and it's yeah. it's really really gripping um she starts with a whole thing about uh, a servant's bridal w- mm-hmm. which uh i don't know that we've ever talked about a scold's bridal on the show i don't think we have because we've studiously avoided
1: the taming of the shrew as much as we possibly could yeah um yeah but she uh, she brings in taming Ooh. of the shrew to talk about that a little bit um yeah And relates that then to, you know, the white women who Mm -hmm. betrayed us all and voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Oh, here we go. Um, Right in the middle of the page. She says, maybe this is why a good number of fairly well-off white women voted into office a serial groper who routinely treats assertive women as scolds, even if they don't know the details of cucking or bridling, um, which were early modern practices of punishing women um, who were scolds, quote unquote. uh, They had been handed down centuries old, a centuries old legacy of fear and threat. It's much safer to hope that a powerful men will ultimately care for you and make room for you, especially if, like Kate, you can create create public performances that the audience can read a submission to patriarchy and or sly resistance to it. Maybe by the end of the play, after being playfully starved and deprived of sleep, Shakespeare's Kate, like today's Kate's felt that the world was too dangerous that her fortune seeking Petruchio now placated with status and money would take care of her. What was the quote that jumped out to you?
0: Yeah. So, so the, the scolds bridal, um, the, the bridal in general, uh, mm. is, a horrific thing um and she says Mm -hmm. that uh this guy writing in 1858 um considers the bridal quote obsolete punishment um at a time when these bridles were a common instrument of torture used on enslaved men and women in the caribbean and the americas now with even readier access to the internet one can search on a phone for slaves bit brank or bridal and see original drawings as well as recreations of both white women and black people silenced and mutilated that cultural inheritance from local english patriarchy to transatlantic slavery hides in inventories and archives right like if you think about what this what is first of all like what is an estate inventory right this is john montgomery the governor of new york he died and yeah. people had to like do shit with all right. of the things that he all owned his right? stuff yeah. yeah so they went in and they made an inventory right okay there were like six books and 12 bed sheets and a chair and a different kind of chair and oh and some people yeah all of these (laughs) people show up and they're not she talks um somewhere in here about how like all of the books were Mm -hmm. categorized together they were they were on a separate page and they were like headed like books and that it was like all of the books like mrs ben's plays right so we know that he he had a collection of Afro ben's plays and assumed that all of the humans that he enslaved would have also their own page and that's not the case they're just sort of stuck in in whatever order the inventory or came upon them in and it's it's awful it's awful yeah so uh on on Another page um, she says here, but then I see right below two bird cages, another line, a Negro musician called Andrew. I remember that, of course, Othello will be like this musician just listed like the other chattels, not a separate category of property, just property, which is just it's 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 hard. It's hard, Um, but important, so important that we look for. And recognize and memorialize these people, these human beings that other human beings did horrific things to.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. her in her writing about that musician, Andrew, Mm -hmm. you know, she muses on what was his training like, you know, who was it that he must have been you know, to be listed as a commodity like that as a musician, he must have been pretty good at what he mm-hmm. did. Somebody had to have trained him in, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and nurtured his music musical gift, you know, Uh so, like, so she muses on like, the inner life he might have had the career, the artistic uh career he might have had. And, and all of this, of course, like, she, you know, towards the end of the article she eventually finds the othello that she's Mm -hmm. looking for Mm -hmm. right but she has to go through a bunch of other junk in the inventory um until she finds this little boy named othello
0: yeah um she says i can find out more about the origins of a pair of philadelphia milled stockings than about many Mm -hmm. of the blacks who lived in the new york colonies which is horrible horrible Horrible, yeah. horrible, horrible, right? So then she finds a Negro boy named Barbados, two pages in. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, Othello, and two pipes old Madeira wine are the most expensive items on the page. They are worth a lot. They are worth nothing.
1: It's rough, man. It's, it's rough to read.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard to read in 2021. Harder still to look through and find and catalog even when you're looking, even when this is what you're looking for, right, it's hard to do the work. And you and I are both white, right, and so don't have a lived history of slavery in our bodies, in our families. Um, well, we probably do, but, yeah, but in, yeah, we probably in a different do. way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't carry this generational right. trauma. In our bodies um, in the way that many, many black people do in America and all over the world. Anyway, um, so she finds Othello. uh, She finds uh, this boy named um, Barbados and a woman named Deliverance. And then here on um, page 176 of the journal, she says, did Othello notice a snicker or humorous glance when enslavers said his name? Mm -hmm. Did they laugh at the thought of an enslaved Othello? Quote, descending from men of royal siege, just from one two of Othello. Did Montgomery have Othello serve him chocolate while he pulled down Shakespeare's plays from his extensive library? Yeah, well, and a thing that she
1: revealed here that I didn't know mm-hmm. was that slave owners gave names that were mocking. To the slaves, like, they would name mm-hmm. them Caesar and Pompey and, like, yeah. these names of great conquerors from history mm-hmm. or, you know, soaring um, titular characters like mm-hmm. Othello as, like, a way
0: to belittle
1: them even right. worse than, than you know, their lived belittling. Um, yeah. I had no idea that they did yeah. that. I mean. And that's a huge gap in my education that yeah. has been filled now. But, like, I had. And that's just, like, that's so gross. Yeah. I mean, it's all gross, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. Yes. Slavery is gross. (laughs) Yes. Yes, but like, yeah. I mean, but it's a detail like that drives home for me. It's like, no, white people of the past or white people of now, like you don't get to say, "Oh, that's just how they lived then. They didn't know how bad they were being." It's like, oh my god. It's like, yeah. Actually, when when you name these people who have been made into property for you when you name them mocking names like that you know exactly what the fuck you're doing yeah um and and the the horror you're inflicting on them that's fucked up yeah it's all fucked up but that's like just salt in the oh it's, it's icky yeah
0: the she closes with um this anecdote of talking to an archivist at the Mm -hmm. at the library um who you know comes over and is like oh you know what do you work on Uh, this this estate inventory is so little and so i was like really interested like what do you want it for right yeah and and dr hall writes by now i've been here a longish time alternating between standing up to read and then sitting down like a slow motion jack in the box while furiously typing out my anger and frustration so i suppress your and patiently explain about Lepore and her mention of the child Othello in the inventory and then the archivist responds and Dr. Hall writes oh I thought you were here because you knew he was a Shakespeare guy and were interested in his books so I'm just gonna leave that there and drive home again uh you should read Dr. Hall's work you should read it, mm-hmm. you should cite it, you should read it some more, even if you don't work in academia, even if you don't work in theater, even if you are just a human being, you should read Dr. Hall's work, because it's always applicable to fucking everything. Mm-hmm. She said angrily, because <laughs> there's so much to be angry about in 2021, and <laughs> At least I'm angry. The year off, no, this, yeah. this is not about me. This is not about me. Um, yeah. This is about reading and, and sharing this incredible scholarship. Um, yeah. We are, I, I can't believe how lucky we are to have Dr. Hall out in the world writing and writing and writing and writing and yeah. sharing her work with us. Um, so give her, give her a listen, give her a shout, give her a read, teach her work. Let's, you mm-hmm. know, jump from, let's
1: thank, the, <laughs> let's do the Marie Kondo of like, thank you thing that we're, that we have. Right. And now we're going to move on to the next thing. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Hall. <laughs> For all the things. Uh, So keeping up with the Queens men.
0: What is the play? And what is my part? Mm
1: -hmm. They're like the Kardashians of early modern theater troops, except they're actually worth your time and not trash. Um, so take it away. Uh, yeah. Tell us about, um, what's in, what's in the repertoire yeah. this week. What are we? So,
0: so today we've got the true tragedy of Richard III, um, which was written in probably 1589-ish. It was printed in 1594. Uh, and here's, here's the plot for mm-hmm. you. Um, 22 years ago, da-da-da, uh, <laughs> the, the House of York seized the throne from Henry VII. Sixth. Sixth. She's <laughs> only one Christ. eye there. I know. And I wrote it. Uh, the, so they seized it from Henry VI. Uh since then, Richard has sought to clear his path to the crown by murdering the deposed Henry and his own brother, Clarence. The dying king, Edward IV, appoints Richard as Lord Protector during his son's minority. As the new king, child, the child, the boy king, travels to London for his coronation. Richard allies himself with his former enemy. Buckingham and some other noblemen flee the kingdom. Uh, Richard catches up with the new king and arrests the rest of the Queen Mother's family despite the king's protests. The Queen Mother and her other children take sanctuary, but the Duke of York is removed to the tower to keep the king company. Richard mm. has the king and York declared bastards, and the crown is offered to Richard. Richard has the two princes smothered in the tower. Buckingham mm. turns against him and conspires with the Earl of Richmond, but is betrayed by a servant and executed. Oh. Richard begins to feel his conscience at work. He seeks to secure his position by marrying the queen mother's eldest daughter. Richmond lands. Noblemen join his forces. The two armies join battle at Bosworth. And despite his superior troop numbers, Richard is killed. Richmond is proclaimed King Henry the Seventh, and marries Lady Elizabeth. Sound familiar? No,
1: I've no? never heard of that plot yeah. in my life ever. <laughs> I'm a terrible liar. Right?
0: Yeah. That's yeah. Richard Third
1: lifted shakespeare just lifted this shit well here's the thing
0: right is that there there are a couple richard the third plays there were maybe a couple richard the second plays there are a couple henry the fifth plays and because they're based on real people right like the story is only going to be so different like how many fictionalizations do we have of henry the eighth right we've got the Tudors, and we've got the other boleyn girl and we've got right those are the only two i can think of off the top of my head but the spanish oh, princess yeah, actually yeah. On, you know we've you done know. yes so like the story gets told over and over and over again right, right. but the, the essential plot points remain the same
1: right because it's history at this point and Except, you kind of can't yeah yeah
0: liberties were taken
1: <laughs> yeah let's just say yeah. <laughs> so we're not gonna play a game this week
0: we're not but we do have some gossip
1: we do mm-hmm. a little bit of yeah. gossip um Coming at you for the brand our first episode of this year. Um, so uh, just recently, and by that I mean like within a week of recording this, Tom DeLise, who has been the who was I think the inaugural artistic director for Baltimore Shakespeare Factory, um, uh, put out a public statement that he is stepping down after his fifteen-ish year tenure, um, citing a desire to spend time with his family. And that is all I'm going to say about that. Although I think it is widely known that that particular phrase is often euphemistic for other things. Mm-hmm. I cannot speculate on what those things are in his particular case. Maybe he really does want to spend time with his family. Your I don't know his life. A great family. <laughs> I have no idea his uh, what his life is. But that is what he said. And that happened. So Baltimore Shakespeare Factory is in the market for a new artistic director at some point, I suppose. Um, so there's that. Also, just a quick hello to our fan, Isabel in Munich.
0: Hi, Isabel. Good luck on your test. Exam.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she's doing exams in Munich, Germany. She's in like an English program there and reached out to us. And I wanted to say hello because it's not yeah. very often we get, um, especially from like across the pond, anywhere yeah, <laughs> right? contact. So like, we don't get international hello.
0: mail a lot. Yeah,
1: inter- yeah, yeah. So just wanted to say hello to Isabel, um, and also the um, I, this is kind of old news. We're coming into this. I feel like I feel remiss that we didn't keep up on this. I think it's because you and I have sort of deliberately blacked ourselves out of social media (laughs) personally. (laughs) So like we didn't catch this for quite a while. But apparently Brave Spirits Theater, who we have talked about a couple of times, who Mm -hmm. we were um, this time last year sort of. Wait! I was eagerly yeah. awaiting the start of their twenty twenty history cycle, which was gonna be <laughs> all eight. I know Jess was like, whoop de fucking do. No, but, but also, I was like, excited. 2020. I know, I January. know, I know. But like remember, I know remember? and they were twenty. Like, they were I know. Right. But um they had this really ambitious project planned and and Brave Spirits Theater always does like really scrappy mm-hmm. good work. Um Apparently they closed for good. They they are yet another casualty of 2020, and they are one of the small you know little independent theater companies that that just couldn't survive. And it's mm-hmm. very sad. And our condolences to Charlene and everybody involved yeah. with the theater and with that particular project. Because um, at first they just delayed the project, and then it looks like they they are closing their doors for good, which is really sad. And then and to make it sadder, in December the New York Times. Um, wrote put out published this really long eulogy essentially for brave spirits Um, and we're going to post a link to that on our landing page so that you can read it and cry Uh, but basically um, it takes brave spirits as essentially a case study for what's happened to a lot of a little independent theater companies due to the pandemic and all of the shutdowns and stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's called lost in 2020 epic Shakespeare and the theater that planned it. And that's for brave yeah. spirits. And there's a picture of Charlene herself, the, the AD and founder of brave yeah. spirits, like right there in the article. Um, so give it a read. If you're ready for a cry, <laughs> it's kind of sad. Yeah. Um, and I think that's it for our, for our gossip. And we also have one brief correction to make. Uh, When we were talking about a play at some point last month, um, (laughs) Jess and I were both struggling to find a word that described, like, it's not a subplot because both plots kind of run parallel. Insatiate Countess. Oh, it was Countess, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah. That's what, duh. Yeah. Yes, Um, because neither one was, like, um, sub beneath the other, or like less than the other, uh, and we were like, "Oh yeah, equiplot." Someone made that up. Um, my our dear friend Adrian Johnson Butler texted me after listening to the episode and was like, "Yeah, that was me, Dumdums." Mm. Um, so, so we want to give credit where credit is due. Adrian is the one uh, who apparently coined the term equiplot in the context of theater with or plays that have two plots that are. Equal in stature and uh, line load, so there's Shout that. Shout out to Adrian. Yeah. What up, Adrian? Yeah. yeah.
0: So, um, that's so that's
1: it. That's this has been a long episode, and <laughs> and it's a lot to take in. So um, thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed about Kim F. Hall specifically yeah. Yeah. than when you started. Get out
0: there and read her works, people. Yeah. Um, tune in next time for we're doing a, a one. I think we're we, yeah we're uh, we're doing yeah. a one on one episode um, on the sonnets. The sonnets, yeah, by popular
1: demand. We for like four years now. We've gotten I mean not like a lot, yeah, but like but one like, or I, two people.
0: Uh, more than one or two. I think maybe okay. maybe like. Three or five. It's been,
1: <laughs> it's been a, what we would consider yes. a critical mass of yes. people writing in to us being like, hey, can I have a 101 on the sonnets? Mm-hmm. You're killing me out here with no 101 yeah. on the sonnets. So, so we're so finally we're doing it. Do that. All
0: right. Ramble out. Yep. <laughs> Bye forever.
1: The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, Please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespearshow.com.
1: You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespearshow.com.
0: You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which I record, the Muskegee Creek Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past and present.
1: I acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land currently referred to as Stanton, Virginia, the Monacan and Menahoic Nations, and pay my respect to their elders past and present.
0: All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. I
1: went ahead and got myself a hard copy of American Moor. Worth it, right? Totally. Worth it. I mean, not to like objectify Keith Hamilton Cobb, but I'm going to for a second. Mm. Worth it just for this cover okay. photo. <laughs> okay. He is a handsome, handsome man.
0: Ooh, he's got some forearms.
1: Yes, he does. He's got a Girl. smile. I was in the front row for American oh, War and I'm saying I know. And I'm sitting there, I was like, Oh my God, he is like strikingly just gorgeous. And then like, you know, towards the end of the play, he like starts crying and you're like, Oh my god,
0: I can't stand it when pretty, beautiful people mm-hmm. cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs>